I'll be reading out of the book of Matthew, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, sorry, I'm so emotional. What's wrong? I got it from Kerwin. It's his fault. <clears throat> but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The Word of God. So we've got an easy text this morning. Love your enemies. It's easy to say. Rolls right off the tongue. Very difficult to do. In fact, this is such a difficult passage. And, and you know, the, the good rule of thumb is when you're preaching on something, you always want to preach or teach out of your own application of the text. You don't want to preach something just theoretically like, hey, you guys should do this. I've never tried it, but I heard it's good. And I've had to stop in conversation. Some people in this room, embarrassingly enough, have heard me say, you know what? I'm preaching on loving your enemies this weekend, so better stop there. And uh, this, is a, this is a hard one for me because it goes right down to the core of what we didn't have to have anyone teach us. We know from the very beginning when somebody does something mean to you, somebody does something bad to you, somebody is against you, you are against them. That is hardwired in us as human beings. And this is why this block of teaching, this last part of the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, is maybe the most controversial, but certainly the most original of all the things that Jesus taught. In fact, you can go back into all the philosophy before Jesus, all the moral teachers outside of Christianity. No one has ever taught this before. In fact, I, I think for us, sometimes we get so comfortable with it because it's in our Bibles. We heard it. If you grew up in church, you've heard this before. It's become a cultural ethos, kind of. But we need to come back to the realization that the strangeness of this teaching is the world had never heard anyone say this before. And no one has taught this since without referring to Jesus. Because outside of the way of Jesus, this makes no sense. No sense. If this is a roundabout strategy to get ahead in life, you don't really want to love your enemies. You want to get something from loving your enemies. And what we're going to see this morning is this is absolutely revolutionary, countercultural, runs against the grain of who we are, unless who Jesus is and what he's done is really true. Bruce Shelley has written a book called Church History in Plain Language. I would, I would recommend it to you for all kinds of reasons, but it's worth the price of the book for the first observation that he makes. The opening line, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. Think about that for a minute. Every other religion, the gods are exalted and you serve them. 
You try and get in good with them. Christianity is exactly the opposite. The central piece is God came, took on flesh as the Son, Jesus Christ, and died for his enemies. There's never been anything like this in the history of the world. And Jesus is going to tee this up and talk about this in the Sermon on the Mount. And what's even greater than that is he's actually going to do it. See, the the thing that separates Jesus from a lot of other moral teachers is the, the deeper that you dig into his life, the more you find out about him, the later you get in his life, the more true he is to what he's taught. There's nothing in the Bible... Nothing in history that would lead you to believe that Jesus was a good ethical teacher on the outside, but lived by a double standard on the inside. So one of the confidences that we bring to the Sermon on the Mount is, as high an ethic as this is, it's being spoken by someone who lived up to it in every exact detail. So the question this morning is, how could this possibly make sense? To love your enemies. One of the commentators says, Jesus plays his strongest ethical card in the Sermon on the Mount. To love those who do not love you is not offered as a piece of pragmatic wisdom. You know that if you've ever tried this. But as a reflection of the character of God himself. What we're talking about this morning is not something that we as human beings can just muster up and it's like the highest ideal of what it means to be human. No, this is actually an imitation of the God that we serve. The only reason that Jesus provides for loving your enemies is because that's what your heavenly father does. And you are his children. If you're a Christian, you're a child of God and children grow up to look like their parents. So we want to do this because it is God's way. D.A. Carson says, to return evil for good is the devil's way. We're very comfortable with that. To return good for good is man's way. But to return good for evil is God's way. So Jesus is entering in in the Sermon on the Mount. He's entering into a long debate between the Jews over what it means to love your neighbor. And in this first section of the Sermon on the Mount, so starting in verse 17 after the Beatitudes, Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to live up to the heart of the law. And we talked about last week, What he's doing is he is pulling the veil back on what the law was always intended to be. The law was never intended to be external actions that lead to an internal change. It was always an internal change, loving God, loving our neighbors, that leads us to act in certain ways. But by Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious elites had not only decided that following the law externally was what God required, they had added to the law. Like 613 laws was not enough for them. They needed dozens of laws to make sure that you kept those laws. So Jesus comes into the mix of a very outwardly religious but inwardly dead group of people. The next thing is he, in this sermon, is saying something that the Torah says or something that's been expanded on in the Torah. He's giving a revision of what that says, and then he's giving us practical advice on how to do it. And this is very important. A lot of times the Sermon on the Mount is taught this way. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I say don't be angry in your heart. And what Jesus is doing, so so it's taught, is he is raising the bar on morality to show how short we fall. It's like 
You think you're good because you don't murder people? Well, actually, the bar has now moved up here to do not be angry in your heart. And the only application of the Sermon on the Mount, if you preach it that way, is so realize that you will never hit that bar and repent and rededicate your life to Christ. That's pretty much the only way you can apply that teaching. This is very important. Jesus actually thinks that by the Spirit, you can live towards what he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. So these are not just like high ideals that somebody else is living. You have been called as a Christian, not under your own strength, under the strength of the Holy Spirit, knowing that we are not perfect, knowing that we have to be redeemed, to actually do this. Right? The takeaway is not, hey, love your enemies. That is an impossibly high bar. You'll never do it. So thank goodness for Christ. He paid for all our sins. Go on your way and continue hating your enemies. That is not what he means. He says, if you get this, if you're a Christian, if you're walking by the Spirit, it will cause you over time to live this way, to love your enemies. So Jesus is doing something amazing here. He's, he's basically inducting us into what life in the kingdom is like by saying, here's what the Torah says, and whatever it has been interpreted to mean, here's what the heart of the law means, and here's how to follow it. So Jesus begins, like all the other examples, between 517 and 548, there are six examples. This is the last one. This, I would argue, is the hardest one. And he is going to say, the law says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the law does say in Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. It does not say love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Here, Jesus has to be almost like tongue-in-cheek saying this, because there had been a debate among the rabbis for hundreds of years as to what love your neighbor actually means. So they had said, love your neighbor as yourself, but the operative word there is neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Because if you can define who your neighbor is, then you know who you have to love as your neighbor. And whoever isn't your neighbor doesn't apply. You can do whatever you want. And they had, over time, restricted the definition of neighbor down so far that there's a Pharisee in, shortly before Jesus' day and several afterwards that say, you know what? Neighbor really means God-fearing Jews. That's who it means. Us, basically. Us Pharisees and scribes. That's who it means. Love those people as yourself and everybody else not worthy of your love. You don't have to love them. So Jesus, almost tongue-in-cheek here, summarizes the whole debate around this by saying, you may have heard it said, love your neighbor in the law. And basically what I've heard is, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's where the debate stood. See, we know this because in Luke chapter 10, a scribe comes to Jesus and he says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you tell me. And he says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and Jesus says, that's good. That's the way I read it too. That's actually the, the, the core of all the law. And then it says, and seeking to justify himself, the lawyer or the scribe says, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? This is not a good faith question. This is not like, who is my neighbor? Because I really do want to extend it. It's, why don't you weigh in on the current debate? Who, how far does this neighboring thing go? Now, Jesus tells a brilliant story. He says, there's a guy who's going down to Jericho who gets jumped, and he gets beat up by robbers, and he gets left on the side of the road. And two extremely religious people, a priest, a seminary professor, come by. They see him laying there on the side of the road, and they do nothing. In fact, they go to the other side of the road to avoid this person because, at that point, 
not my neighbor. Not my neighbor. I've got more important religious things to do. But all of a sudden, a Samaritan comes along. Samaritans are the lowest of the low. They are the people that we're going to talk about later in this passage that are the low bar for ethics. Samaritan comes by. You would expect them to have been the one that jumped this person, not what happens next. They're the one that then goes over and picks the person up and cleans them up and takes them to a motel and puts them there and gives them their credit card and says, pay for everything on my dime, and if you need more when I return, I will pay it. And then Jesus asks a surprising question. Which one of these people was a good neighbor? Jesus doesn't say which one of these persons loved their neighbor. He said, which one of these people was a neighbor? See how that flips the entire debate on its head. It's no longer identifying who my neighbor is, but identifying whether or not I am a good neighbor. That's the standard. And so Jesus weighs in on this. He says, you've heard it said, love your enemies and hate. Or you heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. But I say to you, let me put a fine point on this, Jesus says, love your enemies. So that encompasses almost everybody, right? If you're supposed to love your neighbor and your enemies, you've pretty much got no out at this point. All the world is covered by that. If they're not your neighbor, they're your enemy. If they're not your enemy, they're your neighbor. Love both groups, Jesus says. So Jesus is pulling up sin by the roots in the people's hearts. And he comes out and he has a very strong statement. You should actually just love everyone. The Bible says, love God and love your neighbor. Let me just expand that. Love God and love everyone else. Now, there's two objections that people have to this text. Typically, if you're paying close attention, there's something that rises up in you that's like, yes, this is good in theory, but there's two things that I need to ask about. First of all, are Christians supposed to have enemies? Right? For for some of us, this has not been a big problem for me in my life, but for some of us, it's like, I thought we weren't supposed to have enemies. I thought we were supposed to be well thought of, and our love for everyone else was going to make us all kind of a brotherhood, sisterhood of, of man. And I'm here to tell you, if you try to put what Jesus teaches into practice, you will have enemies. It's not necessarily your fault. It's not necessarily their fault. It's a revelation of the fact that what the Bible says and what we are hardwired to do are actually different. Some of us have been lulled into a cultural overlap where there are certain things that the Bible teaches that everyone agrees with. But there is a core to the gospel that is very abrasive to the flesh. And you probably remember this. If you think back to before the time you were a Christian, there's some things about Christianity you loved. Generosity, humility, love for other people. And then there's some things like sin and repentance and God's teaching on certain hot-button issues that you think, that cannot come from a loving God. Well, your definition of love is going to make some enemies. Your definition of what God has designed us to do and how to live is going to make some enemies. In fact, you are going to find yourself in situations where people that should be your neighbor, in fact, some of the closest people to you are going to become enemies. It's like there was a a guy that went in for marriage counseling, and he goes into the counselor and he said, I'm having all these troubles in my marriage. I mean, it's just horrible, and I need to get some advice on this. And the counselor says, well, you know, the Bible says Husbands, love your wives in an understanding way. He's like, I don't think you get the extent of what's going on here. Like, it's like everything she does, 
I want to do the opposite, and I don't want to talk. I don't want to do anything. We're just so at odds, and the counselor says, oh, okay, well, if, that, if that's the case, then I have some different advice to give you. He's like, it almost sounds like you guys are enemies at this point. He's like, that, that's exactly right. He's like, we went from a great marriage to enemies. He's like, okay, well, then it's, no, for you, it's no longer husbands love your wives. It's love your enemy. That's, that's the advice that you need in this situation. There's no wriggling out of this. You are going to have enemies in your life, real enemies. The other thing is sometimes we think about enemies with quotes around them, like enemies as in kind of the fun enemies, that at the end of the day, you're kind of on the same team. There's nothing really at stake, but you disagree about a few things. These are real enemies. You know, Jesus goes beyond just love your enemies, and, and he says, pray for those who persecute you. This is real, active, sometimes violent responses to the people of God. Real enemies in the real world, those are the ones you're actually called to love. Here's the second objection. If I do this, if I live this way, it definitely seems like the bad guys will win. Right? If, I, if I do this, if I just become a doormat, which again we're going to get to is not what Jesus is commanding here, but if I go ahead and just love my enemies and lay my life down and I don't take big stands against things and I don't retaliate and I don't take revenge, then how do I know that the worst isn't going to happen? How do I know that the evil people aren't just going to have their way in the world and, and they're going to win and we're going to lose? Well, if this were up to you and you decided to love your enemies... That's exactly what would happen. If it was all up to you and you were the judge and you were the person who had to give revenge and you were the person that had set the record straight, the bad people would win. But it's not up to you. That's the foundation that all of this rests on is Jesus isn't saying love your enemies in such a way as like he's a plant from the enemies. It's like, who wrote this? Your enemies? Love your enemies? He's saying there's actually someone else who's going to judge. See, the call to love your enemies is not a call to permit and allow them to do whatever, to get run over, to get abused. That is not what this text means. To love your enemies means to renounce revenge against your enemies. Earlier in the sermon, Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. If someone asks you to carry their bags like a Roman soldier does, then go ahead, instead of just going one mile, go two miles. Now, I want to make a distinction here. Striking in this case is not physical abuse. There's nothing in the Sermon on the Mount that would lead you to believe if you are being physically abused, do nothing about it. That is not the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is if someone strikes you on the cheek, and, it, and if you look at the way that this is written, this would be if someone with their right hand strikes you in this manner, it would be with the back of their hand. And you at that moment are not being physically attacked as much as you are being shamed by this person. In fact, that's what the next example would bring. If a Roman soldier says, hey, peasant, carry my bags, you are not as much being beaten or brutalized as much as you are being inconvenienced and put down and held up to shame for doing this for someone else. And what Jesus is saying in this context is, when your honor is on the line, renounce revenge, because someone else is going to fight on your behalf. 
someone else, if you renounce your ability to get back at the people who get at you, you are doing exactly what God has designed Christians to do. Reserve judgment for the Lord. There is one who is going to judge. There is going to come a day where every injustice is going to be paid. It is either going to be paid by Christ on the cross or it is going to be paid in eternal torment by the people who committed these injustices. At the end, the books are going to come out equal in all of history where God is going to give recompense to the wicked and eternal life to the righteous. And you're going to find yourself in one category or the other, and your enemies are going to find themselves in one category or the other. And Jesus' command is essentially, you should hope that your enemies end up in the same column with you. That's the call to love your enemies. But it's so not what we want to do. When I was working at Camp Kanakuk, we had six-year-olds in our cabin, and one of the things that you do is you go out to these bluffs. And for the six-year-olds, the bluffs are like, 10 feet high, let's say. They're not, they're not even as high as a high dive, probably. But the kids think that it is the most exhilarating, terrifying experience they've ever had. And so you take them all up to these bluffs, and they're all kind of standing there in a line, and you kind of hold their hands and go with them, and they kind of drop off to the counselor who's in the water. So I'm up on the top, and we've got two kids in our cabin that have been at each other the entire time they've been at camp. The whole two weeks we've been there, they have just been back and forth, biting at each other, and one of them is really making fun of the other one and pushing him and shoving him and cutting him in line and all of this. So the kid that's being pushed takes the other kid's life jacket and just throws him off the bluff. And he screams all the way down and hits on his back and starts crying. And of course, there's a counselor right there. He grabs him. And so, you know, we're like, hey, you can't do that. He's like, well, he did it to me first. We're like, yeah, but you know, um, you're not supposed to do that, and we could get in big trouble for that, and uh, you shouldn't do that anymore. So <laughs> we're, we're, at the, uh, we're at the award ceremony, and the way it works is you got to give every kid an award. And so you have like 12 kids in your cabin, you got 12 awards. They're all different kinds, and sometimes you've really got to fudge things to make <laughs> this award apply. And so for both of these kids, honestly, it was one of those like, okay, we got two awards left, two kids left. Uh, which, how could we make this believable? And so in front of their parents, this is a real insight if your kids go to Kanakuk, um, they give you 30 character qualities you have to choose from too. You're like scratch, 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 scratch. Oh man. So anyway, we're at the award ceremony and uh, we get to the end of the awards and the kid that had tossed the other kid off the bluffs is up. And I can't remember what we gave him, the Spark Award or something for high energy, you know, or something like that. And, and anyway, you recognize him, and you do try and find, like, what is really good. You see sometimes the diamond in the rough, which is really valuable. But you call him up to the front, you give him this award, and as he's coming up to the front, the other kid, who had been thrown off the bluff, goes, are you kidding? He tried to kill me. In front of all the parents, and you know, you kind of like look at your co-counselor in that moment, like, yeah, yeah, he did, actually. We were at the bluffs, and we kind of explained what's going on. Of course, the parents are like, yeah, that's, you know, that's just what kids do. And it wasn't a big deal there, but when was the last time you, as an adult, basically did the same thing? We get more clever in the ways that we do it. We get better at hiding it. We get more subversive in how we punish other people. But the drive for us is if somebody doesn't do something, the other person's going to get an award. The other person's going to win. God says all through the Bible that this is not the case, and it's just on us to actually take God at his word. In Nahum 1-2, it says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. 
The Lord is avengeful and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. In Romans 12, 20, it says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. We're like, now we're talking. <laughs> Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The last one I want to point out to you is in 2 Peter chapter 2. And I'm just going to read this whole paragraph because for the way that we apply this, Peter begins to see what's really true in this teaching. He says, or in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, servants, this is the word for slaves, be subject to your masters with every respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This is about the worst situation of enemy you could be in. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures suffering and sorrow unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and you suffer, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow him. He committed no sin. He never had a justification for having someone hate him. Deceit was never found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Amen. There is only one who judges justly. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like, like a straying sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseers of your soul. The motivation for loving our enemies is because we are following the example of our Father in heaven. There is no ulterior motive that will make this true for you. There is no cost-benefit analysis that if you wait long enough, this will add up. There is no roundabout way that someone will see you doing this and reward you, and that will outweigh the wrong that has been done to you. There is no human reason. The only way this works is if you look to the example of Jesus, who Romans 5 says didn't die for his friends, didn't die for good people. He died for his enemies. Who would do that? Only God, only Jesus could set the example of saying, no, in this family, we overcome evil by good. In this family, we actually lay ourselves down. We put down our weapons of retaliation, entrusting ourselves to God, who in the end will make all things Right. This means that we don't draw our standards from what everyone else is doing. If you're living as a Christian and you're looking around saying, well, everybody else is doing it, it's okay, you will never be able to obey Jesus. Because when you became a Christian, something fundamentally changed in the direction and the aim of your life. Your, your life is not supposed to be normal anymore. 
Your life is not supposed to measure up to what everyone else is doing. Your life is not even supposed to measure up to what you think you should be doing. Your life now has been recalibrated to be like Jesus. He is the example. He's the model. He is the true north. Your life should, over time, go like this towards Jesus and look more and more like him. The greatest example of this is, well, what if things get really bad? What if it's not just verbal? What if, what if they really do attack you physically? And again, there's, there's examples and provisos that we should give on how you can protect yourself, but you still are commanded to love. But Jesus didn't even do that. <laughs> Jesus prayed for his tormentors while they were driving spikes into his hands and his feet. Just so you could never say, well, Jesus didn't go as far as I'm being called to go. When Jesus, one of the commentators put it this way, indeed, there the imperfect tense suggests that he was continuously praying, repeating himself, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayers for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? If Jesus himself prayed for his enemies on the cross, and let me remind you, at that moment, we were his enemies. We were his enemies. It's like that song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, where ashamed I hear my mocking voice. It was my sin that held him there. And it was Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them, that was applied to me all these years later. So what does it mean to love our enemies? First, it is a choice. This is the word agape, which we spend a lot of time as Christians talking about agape and all the different meanings. And, and let me boil it down. This is a choice to love. This is not when you are attacked, you will be filled with emotion. This is not the same kind of love as a romantic kind of love. It's not even the same kind of love you have for your family. This is a decided, independent kind of love. It is not dependent on the other person. It's not dependent on the outcome. It's not dependent on what you gain in return. It is a decision to love this person. And it leads to an action. See, Jesus doesn't just say, love the person in your head. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, what kind of prayers would these be? Imprecatory prayers? This is where you get to go back to the Psalms that David is praying against his enemies. No, the first prayer that you should pray is the same prayer that Jesus prayed. You don't have to pray, God, I pray that you would help me to like this person. You know, you can pray for them to stop doing what they're doing. All of that is valid, but the first prayer you should pray is, Lord, bring them to a knowledge of you. Father, forgive them. Bring them to a place of repentance so that they would know you. See, this is the cosmic plan of God to turn his enemies into friends through redemption and reconciliation. As Jamie comes back up to lead us in response, I want to end with the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you've come across his book, The Cost of Discipleship, it's one of the hardest books you'll ever read because it's an application of this passage. It's, a re it's an application of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand by his side, and we plead for him to God. See, these words just take on so much more meaning if you know a little bit about Bonhoeffer's life. He was a pastor in Germany in the 1930s 
who was vocal about his opposition to the Nazis. So vocal, in fact, that when the Nazis did take over, they sent him to a concentration camp. And there was a group of Americans and, and British church leaders who raised enough money and used certain back channels to actually buy his freedom to bring him to the United States. And he refused. Because he said to them, if I were to leave now and try to come back later, I wouldn't have any leg to stand on. Instead, he decided to stay, and in fact, he was executed months before the end of the war. And I'll finish this quote and listen to this in hindsight. He says, this is the supreme demand of Christ. Through the medium of prayer, we actually go to our enemy and plead for him to God. Jesus does not promise that when we bless our enemies and do good to them, they will not use us and persecute us. They certainly will. But not even that can hurt and overcome us so long as we pray for them. How does love conquer evil? By asking not how the enemy treats us, but only how Jesus treated us. It is this that opens the disciple's eye and enables him to see his enemy as a brother or sister. He knows that he owes his very life to the one who, though he was his enemy, treated him as a brother and accepted him, who made him his neighbor and drew him into fellowship with him. That puts it in perspective for us. Love your enemies, and you will be like your father in heaven. Be perfect, be whole, as your father is whole. Be imitators of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And he will judge in the end. Let's pray. Father, we come to you knowing that this is so against what we want and what we desire. And so, Father, we start by asking that you would give us a desire that matches yours. Father, we ask that you would turn our hearts to give the kind of love where we can say, I don't like this, I don't want this, I am against this, but I want to be like you. And because we know what you have done for us, Lord, we can turn and say, if I love this person, there's nothing at stake that won't be worked out in eternity. So Father, help us now to think and to turn our hearts towards your example against us. Father, help us to have the echo of the words that Jesus prayed in our heads when we too are persecuted, when we confront our enemies. Father, would you forgive them? Father, would you turn them from an enemy, from their evil ways? Father, would you, like Zacchaeus, would you just change their hearts so that they would see the horrors of what they've done and they would become a servant of Christ? Father, would you turn enemies into friends? Would you take broken relationships and restore them through our prayers? Father, would you protect us? Father, would you walk beside us? Would you show us what you have for us? Even in the day-to-day, -day, normal parts of our life that seem like it's never going to end, it's never going to change, would you bring prayers to our lips that we might love our enemies? In Jesus' name we pray.